You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR and welcome to Listening Notes, stories about politics, art and activism. Big thanks, as always, to Black Noise Radio for their show today. I'm Judith Peppard and I'll be taking you through for the next half hour. And I begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting from the land of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of this land. And I pay my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded. Over the past weeks, the television has been full of coverage about the selection of the candidates for the U.S. presidential election and many are predicting a win for the Democrats and Joe Biden. Matt McDonald from the University of Queensland joins me later in the show to look at what that win would mean for Australian climate, politics and policy. There's a sense that Australia is trying to game the system to continue to use what was an agreement that shouldn't have been put in place in terms of actually reducing greenhouse gas emissions and in the process is undermining a general push to significant emissions reduction. And that's Matt McDonald, and we'll hear more later. Well, you may have seen in the news reports of COVID-19-driven racism and the experiences of multicultural communities in Australia. The Centre for Multicultural Youth is currently doing a survey about young people's experience of racism during COVID-19, and those results will be coming out next month. Last week, I spoke with Joshua Sim, a philosophy and anthropology student, emerging artist, and an advocate with the Centre for Multicultural Youth here in Melbourne. I began by asking Josh how he became involved with CMY. I became involved with CMY because I've had a few friends who've worked with them directly as a youth volunteer or actually as a, say, full-time position with CMY. And I thought I definitely love to engage with a multicultural community and I guess have my voice heard as well as hear other voices and their perspectives. You're one of the shout-out speakers for the centre. So what do you do in that role? We give presentations concerning issues that directly affect us, such as racism, our experiences as being peoples from migrant or refugee backgrounds, amplifying a voice that hasn't been heard too much before. We're trying to share to a wider audience our perspectives, our lived experiences and understandings of the world. Recently you spoke at the launch of CMY, the school standing up to racism resource. From your own experience growing up in Australia, what role can schools play in preventing racism? That forum focused a lot on a very overt direct form of racism, which has been very prevalent within Australian schools, both public and private. Not only is it important that we address, you know, the the harassment, say bullying, the bias that might take place in the school grounds, but I think from a wider perspective, then to take a step back, it's very, very important, especially because of the the context of Australian history, the Indigenous history of this land, and why it is the way it is today, and to educate on the white Australia policy. I went to a public school and never once did I actually ever learn about the white Australia policy. And it was only through my tertiary education in university that I was actually ever able to even understand what this was or even hear about it. And even then, that was because of my own independent research and having access to resources which I wouldn't have had in my high school education. I believe it's very important to teach 
the truth, teach the hidden layers that are so suppressed within Australian society. We still profit off of the history. We still profit off being on stolen land. We still profit off exploitation as well. So I think it's very important to understand why Australia is the way it is today and not just show one side of the story. And then on the other side of it, the actual direct forms of racism, by educating people of people's backgrounds, that leads into that, into helping children understand the stories of people and not be so biased or bigoted when it comes to seeing difference. When you go out to schools, what kind of response do you get from students? I'm assuming you're talking with students when you go out. I started speaking during the COVID-19 pandemic, so I haven't actually had the opportunity yet. I have friends who have in the past, and from what they tell me, it's nothing but positive. I think what's so, so hidden about all this is that, especially for the migrant population, representation is something that isn't taken as seriously as it should be. And there's been recent reports about diversity in the media of Australia, especially with, say, the news. You know, I'm 21 years old, so I grew up in a time where I flick on the morning news and it's white anchors. And even today as well, I don't see anyone that looks like me on my screens. And I'm consuming that a lot of the time because, you know, I'm a young kid, I'm watching TV. And I wish I had that when I was younger, that someone comes to my school who looks like me and doesn't have to look like me, but has stories that I relate to and that I understand. And if they come and technically in a position of power as well, because, you know, they're up on stage giving a speech, that would be so inspiring for me. It shows that my voice is important. My voice, which I've been so long taught to suppress and silence, is a voice that can have an impact. Does that mean, in a way, you've learned to keep your head down, not to be too visible, because you might attract attention you don't want? Exactly, 100%. And this is something that not only would I have faced, it's something that my parents would have faced as the first-generation immigrants, where when you come to a new country, especially like Australia, even though we champion it as such a diverse country, you have to survive at the end of the day. So as a young person, even though I didn't directly understand it, I knew I had to always show up and always present myself in a way that was digestible for, say, my classmates and teachers and so on. And in relation to behaviors, culture, language as well. Our schools are so, especially Australian schools, you know, we're all wearing uniforms. So we're very stuck up on this idea of presentation and representing our school and so on. So of course, it's going to be that level where I'm not allowed to really be my whole self at school. One of the most important things that we can do, and not even just uh, multicultural children, really putting an emphasis on the mental health sector of schools. I've heard of countless experiences with my friends where they try to get counseling, they try to go to therapy at a schooling level, and it's the first aid teacher who is the one helping them. Not only is there a lack of mental health resources full stop, there's a lack of mental health resources for children from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. And mental health has been an ongoing issue in Australia since I can remember long been neglected in Australian schools. And I'm speaking with Joshua Sim, an advocate with the Centre for Multicultural Youth here in Melbourne. But I wanted to find out more about Josh's photography. I knew from his website that his way of seeing the world is grounded in his experiences growing up in Australia and also his love for his Chinese Peranakan and Indian heritage. Through his art, he hopes to create dialogue about shared experiences of belonging, loneliness, disconnection, and mental health. But I began by asking Josh how he became involved in photography. 
When I was 13, one of my uncles, he's not my blood uncle in my culture. We don't, we just call it like a family friend, an older family friend. So we call him uncle. He lent me his camera, a DSLR, which is like a good camera. I remember the day that I picked up a camera and I took photos. It felt as if I was expressing myself. It felt as if I was capturing what I saw in the world. And when I then shared it with people, they listened. And again, it relates so much to being listened to. For me, doing photography was a way to express that. I, I slowly evolved it to being more portrait photography. And then with my portrait photography, I connected my anthropology and philosophy and would write essays about what this photograph means, what it represents. Still have a very, very long way to go, of course. I'm very excited to continue on my journey. I'd love you to talk a bit more about your Chinese Peranakan and Indian heritage, because there's a lot in those three words. It's actually four words because so I'm Chinese Peranakan. Um, on my father's side, and then on my mother's side, I'm Indian going. The Chinese Peranakan, it is a culture of the South Chinese. There's a debate about about four to 600 years ago. The merchants of the Fuchen area of China sailed down to Southeast Asia. They were the first Chinese settlers in Southeast Asia. So my ancestors, my descendants are those people. The Peranakan culture is a mix of Chinese culture as well as Malay culture. One example to see that is our famed uh, batik shirt. We wear a shirt with the Indonesian style batik, but our uh, iconography of it is like dragons, it's peacocks, it's fire as well. Uh, there's Chinese symbols to it. On my mother's side is the Indian Goan culture. Goa is very interesting as well because it wasn't colonized by the English. It was colonized by the Portuguese. In fact, before the English even arrived to India, that culture, there's a mix of Indian, well, Indian's a very broad word, but Indian culture and uh, Portuguese culture. We have curries, which have like a chorizo sausage in them. I kept thinking about the amazing food. I grew up in a household with very diverse food. And my father used to be a chef. I was very lucky. If I were to relate with how my culture impacts my work with Peranakan cooking, they say that the spirit of Peranakan is located in the kitchen. The recipes for a Peranakan dish, it's not like something you can whip up straight away. They take days. There's a saying in the Malay culture, actually, which, which I'll borrow. It's called aga aga. And aga aga means kind of like cooking with your, with your heart, cooking what it feels right. So when we add a dash of salt, we don't measure it. When we add a dash of bay leaf, we don't, we don't count it. You know, it's just the feeling of it. So I've adopted that practice very much so in my, both my photography and writing, where I tried not to be as mechanical as possible. I tried just to do it with my spirit and my heart. So when I do take a photograph, I obviously create a mood board and so on. But I don't say I need you to be in this very specific angle and I'm imagining it to be this and this and this exact idea. I'm very flexible with it. I'm still very cautious of how I do it, but I kind of just let myself go and let my own body take over. And then when it comes to writing, it's not like, okay, paragraph one, two, three, four. Just what feels right, what flows right. And I think that's the best, most beautiful form of writing is when it doesn't feel mechanical, it just writes itself. I think that's the most beautiful way you can express yourself in art and you're not bounded by anything. And you also said that your art is influenced by growing up in Australia. So how do those multitude of things interact? For me, especially in the West, the Asian perspective, the Asian voice hasn't been heard that much in the art world. And I think it's so important to tell these stories of the people who have never had the opportunity to. My parents were tasked with survival. They came to this country having to work and having to survive. And I'm indebted to them. I'm grateful for them for making that sacrifice of coming to this country. Even though it was so harsh, they've given us the capacity and the space to express ourselves. And my experience growing up in Australia relates to that because, again, you know, I grew up 
in a space where I didn't see the Asian voice being heard or talked about or listened to. I didn't see the Asian voice on my TV, on my movie screen, on the books I read. And even when I went to university, still, I just never saw that. So I think it's important the future generations are starting to take a hold of this and starting to tell their stories because that's what we need, especially if we are to call ourselves a democratic country, to have that multitude of voices. Joshua Sim, a philosophy and anthropology student, an emerging artist and an advocate with the Centre for Multicultural Youth. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced, Produced by Jan. Yeah. 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 a.m. But that's where you are. The show is Listening Notes, and I'm Judith Peppard. Great to have you with us on 3CR this Monday. And now we're going to be speaking with Matt McDonald, an Associate Professor of International Relations at the University of Queensland. His research focuses on climate politics and comparative national approaches to climate change and security. In an article published in The Conversation last Wednesday, Matt looked at what a win for Joe Biden in the U.S. presidential election in November would mean for Australian climate policy. I started by asking Matt what Joe Biden was proposing. Well, first of all, the indication that he's going to return the United States to the Paris Agreement, so re-engage with the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. He's also committed trillions of dollars to energy infrastructure projects that are about trying to transition the US economy towards renewables and away from fossil fuel reliance. And he's committed to net zero emissions for the United States by 2050. How is that different from what Donald Trump has done? Well, Trump obviously withdrawal from the Paris Agreement, arguably not necessarily that central in terms of the US's emissions profile, because at the moment the UN system doesn't have a regulatory or enforcement body that says you're not meeting your previous commitments, therefore these are the implications of that. But the implications of withdrawing the US, both in terms of what it says about the international agreement itself, but also taking pressure off a range of other states is a huge issue in terms of the future of climate cooperation because it is, in essence, a global problem. Have they actually withdrawn? For some reason, I thought they were planning to withdraw, but haven't withdrawn. He's done all that he needs to do to withdraw the US, but there is a 12-month period between the formal indication that you are withdrawing and when that withdrawal comes into effect. 
And at this stage, it's due to come into effect about two days after the presidential election in November. At domestic level, there's been lots of um, pulling back on some of Obama's environmental regulations that he put in place to try to achieve emissions reduction. It had a significant impact both on the US and its emissions profile, but also on the robustness of the international agreement itself. Some of that sounds quite familiar uh, living in Australia. What about Australia's position vis-a-vis the US? You've got parallels associated with at least continued investment in fossil fuel projects and effective subsidies for fossil fuels and less funding for renewables, certainly, than lots of advocates would like to see. There's also a lack of ambition about Australia's commitments under its emissions reduction targets with Paris. So also similar in terms of our per capita emissions, they're quite similar across the two countries. So there are a range of parallels. One positive would be that in both countries, there are domestic action at the level of states and local government that are trying to achieve progressive sets of ends, even while the federal governments in in both are arguably acting in a way that's not particularly consistent with significant action on climate change. And whose interests are served by the US and Australia's inaction? So I would say in in both context there's a real focus on mining extraction and costs associated with electricity that's getting actually a harder case for both countries to make certainly that fossil fuel sector benefits significantly in both countries as a result of our current climate policy settings and to some degree some of the communities that work in those contexts in his paper matt mcdonald refers to the upcoming cop 26 the international meeting on the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. Now, I remembered that the COP25 meeting in Madrid last December was seen as not productive, a failure, a disappointment, some of the words used, and in particular, a small number of countries, including the US, Brazil and Australia, were seen as blockers to achieving real action and progress on climate change. One of the issues for Australia was the carryover of carbon credits. But what's that all about? I asked Matt McDonald. So Australia has indicated that because it reached its um, Kyoto targets well in advance, it should be able to take those extra amount and put it towards credits for the targets it has under the Paris Agreement. And this is, of course, controversial for many because it seems to be trying to gain the system to require less action on Australia's part. But it's also problematic for many because Australia's agreement under the Kyoto Protocol originally was really quite enabling for Australia to continue. We were one of only two countries that had an emissions increase as our target under the Kyoto Protocols. And we included land clearing, which was widely viewed as the Australia clause in the base assessments of emissions. So at both those levels, there's a sense that Australia is trying to game the system to continue to use what was an agreement that shouldn't have been put in place in terms of actually reducing greenhouse gas emissions and in the process is undermining a general push to significant emissions reduction. So are you saying that Australia also undermined the Kyoto Protocol? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Australia's position there was almost holding the Kyoto Protocol to ransom because of the way in which it required all states to make a specific 
emissions reduction commitment. Australia gained permission to increase emissions locally? Yes, by about 5.2%. Australia was allowed to increase uh, its emissions from 1990 levels by 2008 to 2012. So how does that work in an international protocol designed to reduce emissions? On average, the so-called Annex 1 states or developed states ultimately committed to an emissions reduction but Australia made a very strong case for differentiation between those states based on geographical factors, based on how challenging it would be to transition the economy away from a fossil fuel-driven economy to something else. And so because it was consensus-based and you needed all these states to sign on, all these developed states to actually agree to the protocol for it to go ahead, Australia played hardball and said, look, this is our, we want an increase and we want land clearing to be included in baseline emissions. And they wanted that because land clearing had been reducing over time, independent of government action. So it meant, again, that Australia had to do even less to meet its obligations. And at the time, lots of people came out and said, well, actually, Australia was allowed to only have its way because there was this push for consensus within the, the Kyoto Protocol required consensus among states and that was why Australia got its way (laughs) and then Australia now is still trying to use the benefits of playing hardball with Kyoto and getting away with something we probably shouldn't have been allowed to get away with we're still trying to use that in terms of our commitments under the Paris Agreement. Yeah, so Australia's well experienced in looking after the interests of fossil fuel and it seems like cheating in a way. The point of this is to reduce emissions to protect the world. But Australia seems to be going for loopholes, cheating at cards, it feels like. Absolutely. Well, Australia was accused specifically of of cheating in the way in which it represented its particular challenges of transitioning away from a fossil fuel economy and the um, benefits that had accrued as a result of that particular agreement. It's also one of the things that makes climate change so difficult to address at a global level. The most advantage you can have is that if other states are committing to significant action and you do as little as possible, you don't have to bear the economic costs of change, but you all bear the benefits of a cleaner environment. And it's that the global nature of the problem against the national level of sacrifice, that's one of the things that makes international agreement on climate change just such a challenge. And it creates arguably some incentive for states to cheat. Given Australia's well-known abundance of wind and solar, its argument that it would struggle to transition to renewables kind of lacks credibility. It's not surprising Australia's been accused of cheating. I'm speaking with Matt MacDonald from the University of Queensland, and I asked him to tell me more about what a Biden victory in the US would mean for Australian climate policy. In Australia, there's already a growing sense of pressure on the government about its climate positions. The argument about carryover credits has become more and more prominent. Lots of international pressure, including from the UK, to ramp up its ambitions. One of the challenges of Australian foreign policy at the moment is that we are claiming a commitment to the so-called Pacific step up and engaging with states in the Pacific, in part due to concern about increasing Chinese involvement pressure in the region. But our position on climate change really makes it difficult for Australia to achieve those diplomatic ends and because one of the region's core concerns is clearly climate change. They're on the front line of natural disasters. They're on the front line when it comes to rising sea levels 
ocean acidification, all of these things have profound and really existential challenges for those states and Australia's position on its own climate policy and climate ambition is radically inconsistent with the type of action that they would like to see from states like Australia. And you also mentioned in your paper that the National Farmers Federation is calling for more action on climate change. Yes, they've indicated they support a net zero emission by the middle of the century. And this is part of a broader trend where traditional sectors of Australian society, and in particular the agricultural sector, are beginning to recognise just how vulnerable that sector is to especially droughts, but also bushfires as well. And there's a sense that they are on the front line in many ways of climate change and ways in which those of us who are often denigrated as latte sipping inner city lefties, those of us living in the inner city aren't on the same front line of climate change as farmers in So there's that. But on top of that, we've seen growing public concern about climate change over time. And obviously, the devastating effects of the bushfire crisis in Australia brought climate change really on the radar. So there's already significant pressure on the government. But one thing that enables the government's position when it comes to domestic and international action is the perception that other states aren't doing much about it at all. So even just having the United States rejoin the Paris Agreement would be a significant step because it would make it then harder for Australia. At the moment, Australia is able to say, well, at least we're still party to the Paris Agreement and the US is the second largest producer of greenhouse gas emissions and it's not. So even just rejoining will make a big difference, but it's likely, given the scale of Biden's outlined commitments, he will also try to put some degree of pressure on states like Australia to change and to ramp up its ambition in terms of greenhouse gas emissions if he's elected. So I think we could have, in combination with all those other forces, it could have a significant impact on Australian climate politics and then ultimately climate policy. Matt MacDonald, Associate Professor of International Relations at the University of Queensland. So all eyes on the US election for lots of reasons. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Thanks for tuning in to Listening Notes this afternoon. And thank you to our guests today, Joshua Sim from the Centre for Multicultural Youth and Matt McDonald from the University of Queensland. Stay tuned for Diaspora Blues coming up next with Bigua and Basto and enjoy the warmer weather coming our way. Take care, stay safe, and I'll catch you next week at 2 o'clock on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.